broadcasting live from the phx.fm studio in phoenix arizona it's time for valley business radio spotlighting the valley's best businesses and the people who lead them Hello, and welcome to Valley Business Radio, where we tell stories that the traditional media tends to ignore and help connect you to the right people. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian McIntyre. I'm joined in the studio today for another very interesting conversation in our Connect PHX miniseries by three founders, three business owners, three entrepreneurial innovators from our diverse ecosystem here in the Valley. We're going to learn more about their work, about their companies, about the lessons they've learned along the way. And we're also going to talk about PHX Startup Week. This program is made possible in part through our collaboration with PHX Startup Week. That is an event. It's the largest entrepreneurial event that happens here in the Valley. It's coming up on February 17 to 22. We'll talk a lot more about that, but let's start by meeting our guests and finding out a little bit more about them. With me is Jennifer Respecki from Mama's Cold Brew. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Also, Jared Stoffer from RadPay. Thanks for coming in, Jared. No problem. Happy to be here. And Jack Dorney with Jack and Bean. Welcome to you. Hey, great to be here. In this room here, we have kind of a brain trust, if you will. You probably aren't thinking of it that way, but your experience in so many different facets of business, of you know, starting and building something, of relating with the community. There's so much richness that we're going to discover in the course of this conversation, but to kind of get us oriented and give us a little introduction, Jennifer, tell us about Mama's Cold Brew. What's the story of your company and how do you serve folks? Mama's Cold Brew started um, almost six years ago now. It was a business that started on accident. (laughs) Um, I'm a mom of four. I had three at the time. I was in search of a really good cup of coffee, was falling short um, in the easy access area of trying to, I wasn't going to drag three kids into a really cool coffee shop. Um, So I was limited in my options. So I kind of, um, I really enjoy culinary arts and cooking and creating. That's the part of the brain that I use the most. And um, I started messing around and came up with a cup of coffee I enjoyed. I was part of a mothering group at our church. I thought other moms might like it, so I brought it to a community breakfast. They said they liked it. Then they said if I sold it, they would buy it. So I packaged it in a mason jar, wrapped a ribbon around it, stuck it in my trunk, and brought it the following week started an Instagram account and started taking orders. <laughs> I mean, that's that's about as beautiful of a description of the customer development cycle that Steve Blank <laughs> introduced us to so many years ago, as I can imagine. You, you had a solution to a problem you had. You shared it with some people. They said, we want it. You threw a ribbon around it and started selling. Uh, yeah, we could polish it up and say I developed a focus group. I brought it to my focus group. They gave me feedback. I went back and marketed it. (laughs) Well, and it just evokes for me as uh, I'm I'm older than I look. And it reminds me of the Homebrew Computing Club, which, of course, led to Apple Computer. But this is actually another kind of a brew Mm -hmm. uh, that you're making. So that's fascinating. And I can attest as the, um, you know, co-parent of two small children uh, that caffeine and parenting are an essential. They go hand in they, hand. They certainly do. Yes, I just they certainly do. Exploited uh, that. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but it's the thing. There, there's something, and we're going to come back and talk about this. But I just can't uh, not mention the the pain point of not being able to unpack the ki- unbuckle the kids, and get them out of the thing, and through the parking lot, and into the cool place where then you have to somehow be with them in there and manage them inside and, of there. And all of it, and they're being wonderful and wacky and energetic in all the ways that they are. And it's just mm-hmm. not conducive necessarily to the environment. So you thought, hey, I'm going to take the take the coffee to the people. Exactly. Okay. Well, we'll hear more about the story. I think it's uh, fascinating and some of the lessons you've learned along the way. Jared Stoffer with RadPay, you're the CTO, the co-founder. Tell us about RadPay. What problems does it solve? So RadPay is a blockchain-based payment processing company. So we increase the net margin for merchants by 40 to 200%. Uh, put another way, we uh, reduce transaction costs for merchants to accept payments, um, increasing the or decreasing that cost by thirty to seventy five percent. And are these these are online payments, point of sale transactions? Like what kind? Where in the payment world is this? Our our first customers are online or what we call API based customers, um, uh, but we will eventually get to the the retail world, uh, brick and mortar world. What led you to this? Obviously, for every business owner who collects payments, which is anyone who wants to stay in business at some level, right. um, we've, we've just kind of tolerated 
a fairly complex and expensive system, the, the sort of legacy payment processing world that goes all the way from those credit card machines that aggressive salespeople sell brick and mortar companies door to door still in some places, yes. all the way through to you know uh, newer innovations like Stripe, things of that nature. What made you think, hey, I need to get into this mix and add something building on the blockchain and, and, and somehow solving a different set yeah. of issues. Um, so my co-founder and I are both um, sort of blockchain enthusiasts and have been for a number of years. And it doesn't take uh, too long of, of studying and trying to dig into the payment process. You could simply be a merchant and, and gather this, that it's a very complex world. Um, the many or most of the payment processors um, obscure a lot of the details. Uh, there's a lot, there's a big lack of transparency. Um, you'll get quoted one fee and then see your bill and add the numbers up and, and realize, why am I paying six, seven, eight percent, you know, to, to collect this money? Um, so I, I think it, it's just an area that we saw a significant problem in and we saw um, that we could apply some technology that we knew to solve that problem. Um, and also I was looking for a, a business to start. Um, this is my fourth one. I've, I've started and exited three companies. And so on the, for this one, I, I wanted to solve a larger problem. I wanted to be able to build something and create something that would have a larger impact um, in a very positive way. And so um, one of the companies that I, I ran, Brinkster, we had 98% um, of our payments came through credit cards. So we were collecting payments. Uh, we had over 50,000 customers in almost every country around the world. And um, 98% of that was collected through credit cards. So I, I felt the pain in the, in the millions and millions of dollars collecting those payments, what that was like um, for over 15 years. So I was very familiar with the problem on the merchant side. And so going into it, I had a very customer-centric view on, on what that was. Yeah, it's a common theme. Uh, even though your companies couldn't be more different, at some level they have a very similar framework, which is there's a problem, it's a painful one, you live with it, and then you decide to do something about it. Uh, Jack Dorney, tell us a little bit about Jack and Bean, uh, and then we'll also at the end come back and have you say a little bit more about your work with Phoenix Startup Week or PHX Startup Week. Sure. What's Jack and Bean all about? Yeah, so Jack and Bean, uh, despite the name suggesting there might be another uh, cold brew competitor, uh, it's actually a digital marketing agency. We started a couple years ago as uh, experienced marketers, developers, designers, having worked at a, a couple of the digital agencies in Phoenix here. We wanted to break away and, and start uh, a agency that focused a little bit more on the brand story and creating an agency that not only um, helped companies develop their brand, their identity, their story, but also uh, figure out a way to continue telling that story through their marketing efforts. So what we've really evolved into is a content marketing agency, and we work extensively in, uh, with clients on building content through both their website presence, their digital channels, but also uh, we work a lot on uh, SEO and, and helping uh, their customers find them on on the web and understand what uh, they're about and and what makes them uh, the right choice. So it's it's been fun to to build that over the last couple of years, and uh, certainly it's introduced us to a lot of great uh, small businesses in Phoenix as well. As you mentioned, there are certainly a lot of large agencies and so, and and many small ones as well here in the valley that do similar things. What was it about your experience that led you and your co-founder to say, "Hey, you know what? We'd like a shot at this on our own terms. Let's start our own thing." What was the impetus for that? I think it's really all about um, focusing down on what you're passionate about and delivering a service that you can excel at. A lot of larger agencies are dealing with customers that have uh, a large number of needs, and um, it's often uh, conflicting to be able to um, look at uh, individual challenges and, and create a solution that is uh, as high quality as, as you want it to be if you're spreading your efforts over multiple channels, multiple needs. Uh, so it's it's refreshing to be able to start a, a business that focuses on a single service and uh, focus on developing all of the uh, collateral and, and uh, supporting services to give the uh, the best effort towards that uh, particular uh, need. For sure. And as an agency 
co-founder and owner, you're now signing the front of the check rather than the back of the check. It changes everything about what it takes to deliver that kind of value and deliver that kind of work. What are some of the things, you know, listen, we were just talking on a show earlier this morning about the the formative value of failure. Uh, what are some of the things that have, you know, the skin knees, the interesting insights that you've come to learn as you spin this up? Because it's not all smooth sailing. Oh, absolutely. Especially in client services. Because not only is there the delivery of a great product or service that helps them meet their goals, it's all of the things having to do with business development, relationships and all the rest. It's, it's, it's no small mouthful that you bit off when you did this. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really a matter of uh, finding that line between wanting to help your client and realizing there's a point at which um, you can't fulfill either the need they're asking to be met or in the way that they're asking for it to be met. Um, and oftentimes that is best uh remedied by having a good network of other contractors or other agencies that do something a little different and maybe are a better fit for the client. But um, in, in growing that, it's often a case that you have to take a step back and realize that this isn't a right fit. And um, either we need to um, you know problem solve on this uh, or uh, step away at times. Um, so there's always learning processes like that. But uh, it's it's always reassuring to know that you have their best uh, intentions in mind. I want to get a little bit more depth from each of you about some of your personal journey and some of the lessons and opportunities that you've learned along the way. But I also want to create a bit of a shared container for this conversation, which has to do with what, for lack of a, a better phrase, we might call the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in uh, Greater Phoenix area. That's a mouthful. But what we mean, of course, by that is that there are so many different folks who are connected in many different ways. They're all trying to build separately for the most part, but there's a shared pool of knowledge, of resources, access to you know different insights and, and learnings. Uh, what are some of the, and that, of course, is the spirit that informs PHX Startup Week. Uh, what are some of the things to guide this conversation that you would say have been somewhat unique to your experience here? I, I don't know if you've built businesses other places or not. Jared, it sounds like you have. But um, what's different or special or challenging about building what you're building here in the Valley? Jared, we'll start with you. So what's different about building a business in the Valley? So um, my second company I built um, started uh, on the East Coast. Um, I, I think a, a lot's changed in the ecosystem here or, you know, maybe it got established. Essentially, I started my first company in Phoenix in in the mid-90s, 95, 96. Um, and there wasn't a lot of mentors around. So, uh, if any, uh, well, I'm sure there was, but uh, they're just hard to find. Uh, now, if you just, you know, round a corner, bump into a co-working space and there should be mentors there, you know. Uh don't know what their you know experience or quality is, but um, they're they seem to be all over the place now, uh, which I think is very much a good thing. And mentoring is something you're actively doing. I, I saw that I you do. are a Coplex mentor and have been for a number of years. Yep. What do you get out of the mentoring side as a as a mentor that helps keep you sharp and helps keep? Well, it it, it started with um, when I was maybe about six or seven years into running Brinkster. I I ran started ran that company for. Um, 16, 17 years. That was my longest stint. Um, and about halfway through it, I was uh, looking for mentors and uh, I approached a, a gentleman that I knew and um, and asked him and he specifically told me no. And he had just sold a very large company uh, with a group of guys. And I was really taken aback by that. And I said to my wife, if I ever get on the other side of this, I'm going to I'm going to specifically go out and try and do this. And it, it was really around, I, I felt that um, at, at each stage of being an entrepreneur, you're always doing something uh, or tend to be doing something new or something you, you haven't done before. And so there's always questions and you're always stumbling and you're making mistakes. And so my thought was, if I can help somebody not make some of the same mistakes that I did, um, then I would, I would want to do that. Um, it's the same thing that I, um, you, you know, it's, it's, it, it goes along with my philosophy on parenting as well. You know, I want my kids to start as adults where I left off. 
not where I don't want them to start where I started. You know, why, why should our children need to learn all the same lessons that we learned? Why should all of the younger entrepreneurs need to learn all the same lessons? I mean, to a certain extent, they're going to, right? Just like children, right? You have to make your own mistakes. But, um, you know, if we can help them and, and guide them, it's, it, I think it's a better, it's a much better approach. Jennifer Respecki with Mama's Cold Brew. Have you always lived here in the Valley? Have you been other places? What's your kind of geographical background? So I moved to the Valley, I think, about 13 years ago from uh, New York, Western New York. So originally from Buffalo. And is this your first business or had you done something? Else? My first business myself, yeah. I worked for um, the American Cancer Society and uh, the Heart Association. Right. And do you think that you could have built this business other places? I mean, this is a hypothetical, I guess, but what's been unique or interesting or special to you about doing it here? Right. That's a great question. Um, actually, I think that this was a great place to start a business. Um, it's just the environment, the culture here is very supportive of that. And there's a lot of opportunity to network with people who either have a common headspace towards um, thinking local, living local, supporting local. It just seems to be um, right now the place to be to do that. One of the things that anyone who's who's tried to do what you all have done and are in the process of doing is there's a profound sense of loneliness that can creep in when you're trying to deal with problems, make payroll, figure, deal with sourcing issues, client relationships, you know, distribution, et cetera. So like so many things and, and the actual experience is <clears throat> rightly or wrongly that you are alone and needing to figure this out. And there's never enough time or, or money or resources or whatever to, to make it happen. What have been some of the resources, people, organizations, other kinds of things you have turned to as you built out Mama's Cold Brew that have really helped you through some of those dark moments? I've been very fortunate um, from the beginning because I almost had a built-in uh, support system, if you will, um, just because of the nature of where I started. Um, I had a community of people that I had built around the season of life that I was in at the time, which was being a young mom. So um, you almost have these people that are just there to kind of come along with you for the ride. And at that time, um, another local business, Junk in the Trunk, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but they were um, early on in their journey, maybe about a year or two, I don't know the exact number in, um, but they were also fellow members at the same program that I was in. And they had said, hey, we are at Westworld now and we're going to be bringing our event there. We just brought it there. Um why don't you come and try and sell the coffee there? And we very organically grew together, but had this awesome just energy to be able to um, kind of get in front of it. And obviously we're more of a, at the time, female audience driven company. Plus you got in junk in the trunk for free. I did. Yeah. I so did. that's, that's kind of cool. It is. And now we're, I think we're like 15, is it 15 shows in? 16? I mean, we just kind of grew with them. Um, but that just gave us this springboard to fly off of because it isn't common. I mean, I started the company like early March and then we did Junk in the Trunk in April. And we just got in front of thousands of people immediately and then got a contract with Westworld. So, but those women... Um, Coley Arnold and, and Lindsay Holt, who are also entrepreneurs, they also own a company um, called The Foundress here in Phoenix, um, which is a female networking company that supports basically everything that you're talking about. And um, there's just so many very organic relationships that have come from that. And I feel like I've had a great network of people to bounce through and and talk with fellow business owners as we very in the preliminary stages of starting a business. Did the ease and speed of some of those early moves create their own challenges? Oh, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said in the beginning, I, it was an, a business started by accident. So um, when you think of all those formalities that usually occur when you think about starting a business, like a business plan or financials, like projections. Um, How much money are you making? None of that. You know, we really Margins. had we really had none of that. Um, just because I wasn't even it was very much a hobby. It, it was a passion. Um, and I think that that is the dangerous line that you walk as an entrepreneur. Like, is this a passion or is this going to be a business? And I don't think I determined that early on. 
I think I was passionate about it. And then you dream big and you think big. But when like the rubber meets the road, how do you make this thing actually happen? And a blessing in disguise is that it was successful. People liked it. I was excited. So then I'm like, but I was driven by that excitement. So if I had to really think of how much work it was really going to take to produce the amount of coffee that we had to produce. And I have a amazing husband who holds a full-time job and is way smarter than, <laughs> I mean, he's really the automated part of this. He's an engineer by degree and he can look at things and scale them in ways that my eyes don't work. So without that, it would have really been like, holy cow, how are we going to make 200 gallons of coffee in a week? And, you know, that's, we're there and upwards right now. And I would have never being able to do that out of my little kitchen. There's so many lessons in what you just shared that would apply to any business, you know, whether it's something started in the kitchen or, or you know, the proverbial tech garage or what have you, or, or a, you know, an incubator or something. Um, because so few people start this journey with any clear-headed sense of what success is actually going to entail. I had a philosophy professor back in the dark ages when I was in college um, who said, I ideas have price tags. And it was a very important lesson because he said, look, look, you can be cavalier about, you know, your your claims. And of course, he's talking about philosophy. Uh, but every every idea has a cost associated with it. And I think a, my wife said that, too. It, she's uh, was yeah. probably a, a yeah. brilliant philosopher. She is. Yeah. yeah. Still is. And but the idea is that that business models have price tags. And even though you can, you know, even if you do the work of the business model canvas and you put it all down in those beautiful nine boxes and you look at the inputs and the outputs and all the rest, and it seems amazing. And it all goes according to plan every single time. Every time, never. And then you realize that the part that you left out was the person hours that it was going to take you and the impact on your life and your marriage and your parenting and, and all the rest. You know, same, uh, Jack, I'm thinking of in client services, you may start out with the idea that, you know, we could scale this thing and have 500 clients until you realize you're not capable. Uh, and I don't want to project, maybe you're entirely capable, but well, in the certainly. first moments of an agency, you know, you're not capable of doing the work for 500 clients. Like right. it would break you. And absolutely at scale, uh, project management becomes much more a full-time role and, just scaling that, making sure that everything's kept track of. Uh, and HR. It adds more. You can't more scale issues. a client services business without Absolutely. having HR be your primary concern because Correct. there's got to be the people who are going to make the work product for the clients, et cetera, et cetera. What have been some of your interesting moments, growing pains, et cetera, and what's helped as uh, Jennifer was speaking to some of the support systems that she had, what has helped you, Jack, as you've grown your agency? Yeah. So for me personally, uh, I come from a development and design background, as did my co-founder. So we really didn't have a lot of sales experience. And that was very important if we were going to be uh, promoting our own business and, and signing on new clients. So that was something that I chose to, to tackle. And it's really been something that I've had to rely on building a network and, and a support structure, finding mentors in the Valley which is something that uh, has benefited from PHX Startup Week to, to bring that in a little bit. But uh, yeah, so a couple resources here in the Valley, some uh, masterminds um, have been very helpful to work through how to uh, work our sales and outreach efforts, particularly not having a lot of experience in that. And also being able to uh, find the resources, the books, recommendations on reading for uh, developing that further. Jared, you mentioned the challenges in the mid-90s of finding mentors, just not knowing. Like, it's not that they weren't there. There just wasn't the kind of visibility and awareness that brought people together. PHX Startup Week is certainly one of those moments where in a calendar year, you're going to have more folks in one place for six days. Well, three places because there are three different locations. Uh, Galvanize, the Better Business Bureau, and Fabric are the places where Startup Week events are going to be taking place. But there's a density of founders, mentors, investors, subject matter experts, um, you know, people with agency experience that could help you sell your thing, people that could talk to you about the, the practical challenges in scaling your HR team and so on. Jared, I'm curious to know from, 
from your deep experience and the kind of the breadth of what you've done, if somebody, which should be everybody who's listening to this is thinking, I'm going to go to PHX Startup Week and get the most out of it. How would you approach those conversations? Uh, what, what, you know, what can people do to get the most out of this really quite special week in, in our yeah. calendar year? One of the things that I um, often start up uh, start with when I'm mentoring uh, founders is what is your end goal? So I going to start with the end in mind. So um, it's not easy to do. And sometimes you don't have one. Sometimes you're just, you want to just start something and you want to be an entrepreneur. Um, but often after you get started and after those first several months or maybe first six months, you start to go, okay, why did I do this? And things like that. Um, I find often coming back to that saying, okay, what, what's the end goal? Do you, you want this? Is this a lifestyle business? Is this something you're wanting to sell? Uh, do you want to exit at some point? When do you want to exit? Um, asking those questions helps quite a bit because if you have the end goal in mind, you can chart a course to that. And if you don't, then you're all over the place and you're often making decisions that don't make any sense and don't lead you anywhere. Yeah, it's really, really wise piece of counsel. Uh, let's have a little fun with this. This is not a mentoring session and we're doing this publicly. So, you know, caveat listener. Jennifer, what's the end goal? What What's your vision for Mama's Cold Brew? Where's all this going? It obviously has gotten to a place that's very he different. Just, he's just putting you on the spot there, right? You know, just... Good thing I have an answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so we really started with the community in mind. So that's why we've really saturated the farmer's market crowd, the local events in Phoenix. But obviously when we're thinking big picture, we have a very clear mind that we want to have high quality, easily accessible coffee in mind. And that's always been our goal. So um, we are looking to, and I can confidently say that we have stuff in the works to um, open up drive-throughs in Arizona. Um, we want it to be a unique experience to what is out there where um, it's just going to cater to what people see at our farmer's markets. It's going to be in that same. So you don't want to be the McDonald's of coffee. Right. Um, not that there's a there's a place for everything. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm not certainly not knocking what they've obviously created an empire <laughs> doing. Uh, but for us and. I do see an open space that we um, could fill with our product offering is um, our coffee is organic or local when possible. Our creamers are high quality. We don't, we omit, we can check all your boxes. That's the easiest way to say it. You're gluten-free, you're vegan, you're non-dairy. I like it. You're all the boxes. If you have one, we can check it for you. Um, and we can check it in a way where we're not adding those preservatives and all of those health concerns, but yet still making it taste good. And we want to kind of package that in a nice little white box and put it on a corner and have you drive through it. Nice. <laughs> Lo locally roasted, surely not locally grown. Um, or is there is so, there well, coffee well, all right, agriculture so I here? Should, I should clarify. So we, I'm talking about our creamers. Um, okay, so because not only are we a coffee company, I mean, in our name it says cold brew, but we really are a beverage um, company, and we make homemade creamers. That's our cows, Arizona cows. Yes, of which there are many. There are many. Okay, great. And then that go to market strategy has you competing directly with not perhaps Starbucks, but the Dutch bros and the sure. the independent kiosks that are still around in various places. Mm -hmm. um, how are you going to communicate those differentiations to your, I mean, but you're going to just scale what you're already doing, which is when you talk to moms at church or at a farmer's market mm -hmm. or wherever, they get it. And you don't need to, the, you know, the rest of us dudes around the table don't even need to understand if they know what you're talking about and they can drive through to get it, they right. will. Yeah, I think that... Um, I try hard to take what I can from the Dutch brothers that are around and everything, but I don't focus that as our product is so unique. And not, I don't want to sound elitist, but it's it's unique in what we have that it isn't a direct threat to what they do. So the people who are looking to consume what Dutch brothers has to offer, they're still going to go to Dutch brothers. Um, but if they're looking for something that we have to offer they're not going to find it at Dutch Brothers and vice versa. So I don't think that we're necessarily um, competing. I don't think that we could at this point in time, maybe give us five years, but. <laughs> but I think you have, you have something similar to Dutch Bros. Dutch Bros, I think um, having teenagers that spend probably too much money at Dutch Bros, 
Um, they, the reason why is it's, I mean, obviously their, their coffee and their funky flavors and all this different things they offer, but it's the culture. It's the, the vibe. You know, yeah. You know, it's and that I kind think of that's thing, where that's, you, you start creating and, and our culture and vibe, although similar meaning that we're a coffee company, yeah. um, our culture and our vibe is going to hit a couple different, a different demographic, different demographic. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way to put you it. You know, another thing I think that is uh, awesome about mama's cold brew is I think you've spawned a whole bunch of sort of almost copycats people that say, Oh, look, mama's cold brew did it. We can do it too. <laughs> and I think that's a huge sort of marker to your success. I think that that's a process to realize that, right? Because yeah. you think that your market share is so small when you're a startup and you know that it's taking everything you have right. that you're throwing at it. And then anybody who you think is coming in and taking part of that market share, you know, at first you're like, whoa, don't do that. But as time has gone on, um, I think your your confidence in what you do personally and why you do what you do builds. And then you're less worried about what's, you know, around you. The less you can look sideways at what others are doing and the more you can focus on your goal, the better. And of course, if you can look to them to support them sure. and help them give a leg up, but that that's great. That's good positioning. That's good right. karma. That's good everything. But not being bothered by what the so-called competition is doing. There's, there's no competition at the end of the day. Well, there's no way to... You, you only can control what you can control. And I'm happy for anybody who's out there. It's great that coffee culture is just rapidly growing in in Arizona, in Phoenix. So um, I'm just glad that I got to be a part of it and I'm part of it. Absolutely. And what I mean by there's no competition, that's glib and not exactly accurate. But what I mean is I was talking to another founder recently who's got a unique service and it solves a real problem, but it's a problem that people spend um, almost no time thinking about because they're willing to tolerate it. And and so in his case, with his concept, the competition is not some other company offering the same service. His competition is the inertia of his customer. And so it's a very different kind of communications challenge to get in there and disrupt that. Jack, what about you? What is your vision for Jack and Bean? Where is this all headed? What are you up to? Right now, currently uh, still involved in the day-to-day -day a lot, um, working with clients directly, coming up with solutions to their challenges. But uh, priority this year really is to, um, my goal is to step away more and more from the day-to-day the -day and work more on um, creating resources for the community. And we, I would really like to see us in five years to be uh, positioned as thought leaders in the content marketing space. Um, I really enjoy getting uh, the word out about what small businesses can do on their own uh, to make an impact and, and grow a community around their products and services. And that's something that uh, I really would like to uh, focus on um, hosting workshops and, and webinars on uh, over the next couple years and uh, and have more presence at, at conferences. So this year we're aiming to, to attend HubSpot Inbound and, and other conferences that are in that space. So looking forward to that. Now, content marketing is is in a really interesting moment in the kind of lifespan of that term. Um, and I think without knowing much about what you do, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts here because it's never been easier to get really bad content available cheaply. Oh, absolutely. Which does nothing for you. And in fact, in many cases may have a negative uh, impact on you, right? Because right. content farms and spun articles and things that we used to worry about, you know, a while back now are actively hurting companies that think that that's the way forward. Having said that, it's, it's um, something that when done well is time consuming and intensive work. It requires a certain level of, of creativity on the part of the writers, the designers, the people who are putting together the assets, the creative assets, including the visual and the verbal, right? So how do you scale something that if it's going to be any good is going to be expensive and time intensive to produce? Yeah, so to speak to that, um, yeah, marketing and advertising is definitely seeing a lot of exciting developments with automation and AI, and that is impacting things for the positive and the negative for, for small businesses. Um, it's never been easier to automate a lot of processes and make it easy to scale uh, a lot of aspects of, of marketing campaigns. But uh, as you said, there's it's never been easier to get a lot of junk out there as well. Um, but generally, audiences are pretty smart. And if you are reading something that's written by a computer versus something that's written by a person, it's fairly easily easy to tell the difference. Um, and so that, that quality really uh, 
is important. And particularly if that's representing your brand, your product, your service, you want to make sure that it's representing it well. So the quality is something that we really focus on. And that's something that I don't see being, uh, you know, kind of outdated by any means, uh, by any automation or, or AI, uh, because humans can can write it well. And we're still reading Shakespeare. I mean, yeah. those of us that are. Uh, <laughs> and if he had an ebook, I might put my email address into the form in order to get it. Exactly. Uh, you, you speak to something really um, important, which is as we we continue to deepen the complexity of campaigns. By the way, does your agency just do creative? Do you do paid media? Do you, do, like, where do you sit in that? Are you doing both? One or we the do other? a little of both. It's primarily in support of our our core service which is the the creative um but oftentimes if it's part of a larger campaign we'll uh, we'll manage those paid channels as well so the the complexity of you know it's equal parts math and magic right where you know we're now in an era of pixels not just pages i'm really into the alliteration today this mm-hmm. is good stuff the complexity of that is something that many business owners simply don't understand, both in terms of the opportunities available to them if they were to do a smart execution, as well as the, um, the potential pitfalls for them to just waste an incredible amount of money getting no results. So how do you talk to potential clients about your services and help explain to them what, you know, the unique value you're providing? Well, there's a lot of great tools out there to really look at and dig into the audience that the client is trying to approach and what their competitors are doing. And that's always a great place to start. Uh, so we can look at what search terms, uh, you know, their audience is using, for example, if we're looking at um, their presence on Google, and we can get an idea of what uh the audience is finding what resources are out there and try to find opportunities for clients to create something of value that maybe their audience isn't finding yet. And generally the approach is to uh, kind of build resources for clients on, or rather for customers on behalf of clients so that they are producing value for, uh, for their customers to find first and, and kind of look at their, um, their business as a, a resource and a, a trusted source. The uh, the 18th century Prussian military leader Helmut von Mulke said, "No battle plan survives first contact with the enemy." Steve Blank said, "No business plan survives first contact with the customer." And the great 20th century philosopher Mike Tyson said, <laughs> uh, "Everyone has a plan till they get punched in the mouth." You really are a cultural anthropologist, aren't you? Like this is the only thing I'm good at, by the way. So it's, <laughs> it's it's interesting to me that in order to get the benefit of the kind of work you provide, companies have to have the stomach for the learning part of any campaign because that costs money up front and doesn't produce immediate results. The biggest challenge is when people's expectations oh, we're hiring a digital marketing agency and we're paying them this high monthly fee. And so now dollars are just going to start flying out of the internet. Uh, navigating- That isn't tech- how it works? Yeah, it's not mm-hmm. how it oh, works unless you're unless you're selling uh, online courses and then that's exactly how it works. Okay, okay, cool. Um, Good to know. Yeah. And so, um, and coming soon to you, my, my uh, gazillionaire launch formula is available now. Just put in your email address and everything will be taken care of. Sign up. Sign up. I'll process the payment for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so- how do you navigate the expectation gap? Well, I think it's really important for clients to first understand that data and iteration are essential for any marketing campaign um, because that's what you want to base your decisions on. And if you don't have that to start, uh, you can base that off of competitive research. Unfortunately, your competitors aren't going to give you all of their data, so you have to find what you can um, and iterate based off of uh, what you can find initially. But um, ultimately, uh, campaigns uh, live or die on on iteration and continued um, management to to be able to to build off of any success, any um, or you know uh, remove any potential pitfalls or what doesn't work, so that you can focus on what does work. Yeah, I mean, very very well said, Jared Stoffer. What's the future for RadPay? What's the vision? What are, what are you doing here with this really ambitious and I think important? foray into the payment space? That's a great question. I, I should probably have an answer for that. 
ultimately, we're trying to build our own what's called payment rails, which is um, a network that processes payments. So one of the reasons why you're, you know, as a merchant, you're those fees are so high is because it's a essentially a 50-year-old, 60-year-old industry. And as many industries do over the years, it's gotten a lot of middlemen in the process. And so our goal is to disintermediate as many of those middlemen as possible, reducing fees, reducing friction, increasing transparency. So ultimately, what we're trying to do is build a, uh, a separate payment network that ideally would have um, you're really only three people involved, the merchant, us, and the consumer. And, um, but, you know, from a, from an exit standpoint, you know, I, I think you, you know, we are building a company to sell it. Um, you know, that's not what we're aiming at right now. And, you know, that, that may or may not come. And at some point in the future, um, you know, I don't think you can build and say, oh, we're going to build this to sell it. Um, you know, I, I think you can have that as an option or a goal in mind down the road. Um, and so, you know, for us, we're we're very we're focused on um, on building the company right now. Um, but I think we also have we have a very specific architected plan on how to get there, what money needs to be raised, you know, what valuations we need to hit. Um, and I, I credit my co-founder, um, Dr. Dana Love, uh, this is brilliant guy has a tremendous background in four exits himself. Um, uh, but is largely our architect of this plan will, we will plan to raise certain dollar amounts at certain points, hitting certain valuation markers with the intention of, of growing, uh, what will end up being a very, very large company. And, um, you know, if and if we do it right, we'll have an extremely positive impact on on merchant base throughout the world. I think, to a certain extent, what well, one of the things that we have to acknowledge you all have in common is the bravery it takes to take on what you're doing in very different executions. Uh, you're 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 boldly, or to whatever degree, boldly entering into established uh, marketplaces where. Your solution, while it may be better, you know, is is in a crowded place. And particularly, Jared, when it comes to questions around currencies and sovereignty and, you know, national governments and all the rest. I mean, the, the future, I believe in what you're building fundamentally. Thank you. And the future of getting there means, you know, you're going to have to somehow, this is I mean, like the whole world is going to have to grow up enough that's something that is independent of not only the legacy financial services players, but the regulatory, governmental, and others that are involved in currencies and all the rest. I mean, we don't want to get into this nerdery around, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrency too much, but the, the reality is you are going right into the heart Absolutely. of something that has been taken for granted for a long time as the way we do it. And it has to be this way. And if it's not MasterCard, Visa, Amex, or Discover, we don't know what you're talking about, right? And of course, cultural anthropologist here saying, yeah, but remember, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, we had wampum and we had, you know, chickens and, and, and maize and we had all kinds of things right. that we used to engage in transactions that didn't require us paying a fig to somebody in the middle. Piece of plastic. Right? Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating journey that yeah. you've willingly signed up for. Yeah, and I think I think you have to have a big idea, but you also have to have small steps, right? So, um, I mean, yes, do we want to build our own payment rails and payment network? Absolutely, you know, um, but that's not our MVP. That's not the first version one out of the gate. You know, we're, you know, we've, we've found a way to um, process normal credit card payments with fiat, you know, U.S. dollar currency, um, in a way that saves merchants a significant amount of money. So, you know, we, we plan to solve a lot of different pain points. We've got big ideas and a very, very large vision. But I think whenever you do that, you have to have very small steps and say, okay, what's version one going to be? And, you know, um, thankfully, we're, we're solving um, quite a large pain point, even in version one. You know, we're obviously not going to stop there. But if we were, we'd have a very large viable business. Um, and I think you, you've got to start somewhere, you know, do, do I think that, you know, rad pay is gonna, is gonna become the next visa. That would be fantastic. Be I would, rad, I, I would, that would be, it would be quite rad actually. Yeah. Um, maybe even gnarly. Yeah. So I, I think you have to have some very specific steps, you know, um, and, and you, you, you need to have a big vision. You need to know, okay, I'm, I'm aiming, you know, I'm shooting for the moon, but you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna try and get out of the atmosphere first. 
as we begin to wind up what could be a very interesting prolonged conversation, but we won't we won't keep you here. Um, I'm curious to know as you look in the general direction of the this PHX ecosystem, right? The the very diverse uh, network of entrepreneurs and the variety of support systems that help with this kind of work, whether it's educational institutions, um, state agencies, investors, big companies, co-working spaces, kind of the whole mix of it. What are your thoughts on what's going well? And and I'd really like to hear what are some things that from your own unique and personal position, you think the community could do better? Jennifer? I think that it where I stand is different maybe market space-wise on how and who I engage with to do my particular business. And I think that culturally right now, you're seeing a lot of boss babe, female bravity <laughs> going on. Um, and I've I, when it, it started, a lot of that started right when I started um, Mama's Cold Brew, I call it MCB. Uh, and I think that that's, interesting because influencers are a thing, the influencer market, social media marketing. And I think it served us and it serves us well, but it also consumes us to an extent that there is no, it's a very gray area on how productive it actually is. And I think that we're seeing a lot of that come out in the wash, if you will. Right. I mean, there's a lot of folks that have incredible Instagram accounts and no actual businesses. Exactly. So it's it, when you're... Not that there's anything wrong with No, that, but you way. spend but a lot right of time engaging yeah. with people that you think are going to influence your business that maybe aren't. And they use a lot of buzzwords and ways to engage other businesses. So I kind of, I fit in this interesting area where... Um, you can be considered an influencer, so you get invited to influencer events. But then the same people who have also been labeled influencers, how influential are we really to move a needle for business? And so it's just it's a everybody and anybody can be that then. There's no clear job title or job requirements in order to be that, except for to have a certain presence in social media. So I think that we, I don't have an answer to your exact question. No, I think this is a great answer because it speaks directly to what I was after, which is the the unique how it looks from over here answer. Right. Yeah. So we use social media to market very specifically a very tangible product that we want our consumer to enjoy and purchase. So our social media turns into, we can see the return on what it's actually doing. So I think that that's great. Social media has been great. But because it's been inundated by so many different influencers, the algorithm and everything is so off that now we can't actually reach. We have trouble reaching the people we want to market to um, just because so much of that has changed in the last year and a half. So that's one of our like real life big struggles because we spent so much time building a base to market from. And then uh, we became a company that was very focused on our brand and then our brand delivered a product that people liked. And then we that was a great marriage because sometimes you market something and then you try it and you're like, oh, the marketing was great, but the actual product fell flat. So now we still want to market and we want to get to the people, but we're having a hard time getting it to the people because of the way social media has now it's not it's not even like it was two years ago. It's just please turn on your Instagram notifications for Mama's Cold Brew. Please turn on your Instagram notifications. Are, yes. are you doing only organic or are you also doing paid on Instagram? Do you have I, I stories, think, swipe up ads and stuff? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, not swipe up ads. I Location-based tagging? Mm-hmm. Targeting, we do. I mean, yeah. Um, and I have, uh, yes, I, and I feel like we've done, we probably could do, no, I feel like we've done a lot with social media. I feel like we really do. We we spend a lot of time on our content and on our brand and, um, and making sure that we try and do we keep up with what's going on, but it still is a challenge. And it's a challenge if you've put everything into that basket to figure out how you're going to deliver your information. Yeah. It's a challenge that Jack and Bean wants to help solve. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> yes. For everyone. <laughs> right. Because it's, yeah. it's you know, it's, so hot take, Jack, what's the ecosystem doing well from your unique point of view? And what are some things we could do better? PHX is really interesting to use the term that uh, Startup Week uses for the community uh, because 
so many people here are transplants from all over the country. It's really interesting in, in the challenge that uh, a lot of business owners face because maybe they don't have a network built in uh, through family and friends that they've grown up with. They may not have mentors uh, that they have easy connections to. Um, so it really is a challenge to bring that community together. Um, so that's some one thing that Startup Week tries to do. Um, but there are really great uh, networks and opportunities here to network um, through a lot of the co-working spaces through which have really grown over the last few years and um, a lot of organizations that put on events and and uh, similarly are trying to um, bring entrepreneurs and, and young people together that are starting their first business, which is uh, really uh, great to see. Yeah, absolutely. Jared, what are your thoughts? What's going well? What can we do better? There's a lot of things going well. Um, the ecosystem has really come a long way in the last decade. Um, I think that there are there are a lot of resources available. So I think what's going well is that there are a lot of resources available. Um, I would, you know, my advice would be that, um, you know, I would obviously, I, I think it wouldn't be any surprise, I'd, I'd suggest people find a mentor. Um, but my suggestion around that is find more than one mentor. And uh, the mentor that you're talking to really understand where their level of experience and expertise is at and on what specific area um, and, and seek their advice and counsel in that specific area. Um, I think that um, because, you know, sort of the, you know, potentially negative offshoot of having so many mentors is that there's you know, you, you might not get some great advice, but, and I think sometimes I don't give the greatest advice because I always start my mentor sessions out with the disclaimer of, you know, everything that I'm telling you could be a pile of crap, you know, cause I don't know much about your business. And so uh, it's really hard when you, you know, that's the other thing is that mentoring I think is done best when it's done with people you actually build a relationship with and know, um, you know, often the, the mentoring, um, that, that happens, you kind of get just dumped in and here, I'm going to be here for two hours and I meet with four different companies. And, and it's just really difficult to do that, uh, with any level of, of quality. Cause you just don't know people, you don't know their individual situations. What's not going well. Um, you know, so this may, may not, uh, be too big of a surprise for anybody that, that knows what I've been doing for the last, you know, six, six months or so. And that's a, around fundraising. Um, fundraising continues to be an enormous challenge in Arizona for, for companies. Um, it, and, and I think that, um, pro probably the biggest problem in that area is just that there's, there's just a, a, a single lack of funds here that are available. Like if you look at the amount of funds that are raised here versus the amount of funds that are raised in Silicon Valley, it, it, it's statistics show that we raise, I, I believe it's it's around 2% of what's raised in Silicon Valley. It, it doesn't mean we have to be Silicon Valley. And I, you know, I've, I've heard and been a part of a lot of those discussions. Um, but it, it's just, it's a very big trial and error, you know? Um, and there, there are certain things that work and certain things that don't work. Um, you know, that that's, there's two parts of that. You know, one is the actual sort of, uh, act of going out and soliciting funds and, or, you know, or being cautious how you do that from a legal perspective, um, uh, not legal advice, consult your attorney. Um, but, um, but also architecting the plan, how much are you going to raise at what valuation, at what stages and what is the next you know, what's the next round going to look like? And what's the round after that going to look like? And if you don't have a plan set up like that, you get, um, you, you kind of can get taken advantage of. So according to PitchBook, the average company in Arizona raises money at a $3 million valuation. They raise a million dollars and they give up a, you know, a roughly a third of their company. Um, and depending on the situation you're in that, that could be good or, or that, that could be bad. Um, so, I mean, we, we raised um, at a significantly higher valuation than that, and, and we were very, had a very deliberate plan on, on how we we're going to do that. Um, it definitely wasn't easy, and, and there was a fair amount of trial and error in there. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that's, that's an area, and I know a lot of people are trying to help and trying to solve that, but it's just, I think fundamentally, it's, it's a, a symptom of just the amount of capital that's available. You know, when you look at, you know, the angel groups in, in Arizona, there's, I don't, I don't know how many there are, so I could be getting this totally wrong, half a dozen, maybe four or five, you know, um, in Silicon Valley, there are thousands, literally thousands. And so it's, it's just the fundamentally at the very beginning of the problem, 
there's just a, a lack of funds that are available that are aiming to be invested in that area. Um, and it, I, I, I don't know how to solve the problem, but I know that's a really difficult one. That's probably, I would say, one of the harder ones that people face as they start companies in, in Arizona. Um, there's so many, so much else that's going well and going right. Um, you know, I, there's tons of co-working spaces. There's tons of, you know, um, I think Coplex does a, a phenomenal job of, of bringing, you know, um, vertical experts in that, that, that have ideas that start companies and building. There's, you know, a couple other groups that do similar stuff than that. There's lots of, you know, like Jack's company to help you market and stuff like that and help put your product, you know, marketing and story together. But let, let me ask you, I just want to push back on this just a little bit because it's something I think is is hugely important and I don't have enough of a sense about it. So I'm, I'm really approaching this with a, with a learner's mind here. And I'm asking you specifically, Jared, because this is not your first rodeo. You've had multiple exits. You've had, you know, I'm sure a, a history of successes and failures. So let's just talk about this for a second because we do hear this complaint about the lack of funding uh, often, and and I'm just curious, like, what's the counterpoint to this? Um, if we had the the angel investors or VCs in here or family offices in here or whatever, what, would they be telling us a different story or would they is everyone on the same page? I'm asking you to now step outside of your sure. fundraising challenges hat and kind of reflect on this for a minute. Is Silicon Valley even the right um, reference point? For this, uh, is there a lack of maturity in in the in the startup environment that there's less investable ideas? I just don't know. Like, how is it possible to have a multifaceted discussion around this? Absolutely, uh, I think Silicon Valley has to be a reference point. You know, it's where the majority, or not the majority, but a significant amount of money is raised for startup companies in the U.S. So it's we're still in the U.S. We're not talking about going to Europe or or Asia. I think that um, some of the counterpoints to that are, um, you know, that, that if you had a, a table of investors sitting here, you know, they might say that there's a, there's a lack of quality um, ideas. There's a lack of um, maturity to the ideas. Um, you know, one of part of the problem when you have a small base of investors is that they, at, at least in, in Arizona, they, a lot of them have gone up market. So your, your angel investors are acting more like VCs. They're wanting, that's they, a good point. They want yeah. revenue and, and, you know, so they, they want, they want product and they want customers. Um, and so depending on how complex of what you're doing and what you're building is, um, that can be really, really hard, you know? So for, for us building a payment network, you know, it has to work end to end. There's no halfway, you know, but if you're building, a you know, a SaaS company, you can, you can build an MVP for that, that has a limited, uh, feature set and you can find a couple of customers and you do that. So I think if, you know, if I was building a SaaS company and, you know, I, I have a track record of success as well as my co-founder does, you know, I, I, we, I believe we would have had an easier time. Uh, you know, raising money. So I, I think that the the counterpoint is that the the it's 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 a double edged sword. The the investors want uh, they want they want product and they want you know revenue and customers, um, but they 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 feel like they don't. There's not enough good ideas or good companies out there. So a lot of them. Uh, one of the messages that I heard before I started RadPay was, you know, from the investor base was, oh, we want the uh, entrepreneurs to to think bigger. In Arizona, they need to think bigger and 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 have a broader, you know, have have a larger vision and and stuff like that. Um, but you have to be cautious about that. If you communicate a larger vision, you might scare the investor off. You know, um, so that's what I was talking about earlier. You have a big vision, but small steps. Yeah, you know, very very good. Listen, we got to wrap up here. I'd love to just hear uh, before we do a final plug for PHX Startup Week. What's uh, what's one thing you're kind of excited about in the future aside from Startup Week, which happens February 17 to 22? Jack, as you look forward to the next 12 months or so, like what lights you up? What inspires you? What, what do you see coming that you know you're excited about? Uh, well, I'm certainly excited to see what uh, we'll hear from uh, PHX Startup Week this year. Um, it, it's always a good time to kind of check in with the um, uh, various players in the PHX community in terms of startups and uh, coworkers. Uh, you know, I'm I'm always hopeful to hear that there's more investment coming into the valley um, and more interest in in uh, in funding for a lot of the startups. So, um, I, I I would definitely like to see uh, more of that growth uh, this year. Great. 
Jared, what about you? What uh, what lights you up looking forward? There is actually uh, you you mentioned you know increased startup. There's um, a lot of the funds um, VCs that are outside of Arizona are, are looking more and more into Arizona. Um, I know the Arizona Commerce Authority is is doing a, a lot to try to to try to bring those funds in, invite them to come. Um, GPEC is also doing great work on. Um, trying to showcase Arizona and what's happening here. And so you, you are seeing, I'm seeing as an entrepreneur, more and more attention focused to that. Um, and so so there, there's a lot happening there. Um, from my perspective, uh, Phoenix Startup Week is just a, it's a phenomenal way to to really, to get out there and network, to see what other people, you know, like you mentioned, um, feeling lonely as an entrepreneur, which is, I think, a very common, common thing that happens. And so, you know, you're, there's thousands, there are thousands of people, you know, whatever, five, eight, 10,000 people or whatever, but it's, it's filled with people that are sort of, they have, they're doing the same crazy thing you are, you know, I think being an entrepreneur, the, the, the line between genius and insanity is, is thin. Um, so, you know, if, if it flops, you're, you're insane. If it, if it's successful, you're a genius, right? And, and, and the ability to tell what stage it's at is very difficult. So for me going to Phoenix startup week, um, you know, after you go a couple of times, you know, some people, you're seeing a bunch of old friends, but you're also sitting in on these sessions and you're listening to, um, someone talk about a topic, but sitting to your right and left is other entrepreneurs that are going through the ex exact same challenges and problems and, and, and things that you are. And so it's, it's a great time to, to, to meet new people, to, to learn about, um, you know, what challenges they're facing. And, and um, it, it's a, it's a great peer event for, for entrepreneurs. And it's also a great event for people who are thinking about being an entrepreneur to come and just get a taste of it. And uh, just to see what, what resources are available and what's out there. It's, uh, it's kind of the, uh, I, I sort of deem it as the entrepreneurial Super Bowl in uh, in Phoenix every year. Jennifer, as you look forward to the next 12 months, what's exciting for you in Mama's Cold Brew? What's what's coming? What has you kind of lit up and inspired about the future? I think it's just an exciting time to be a business owner in Arizona. I think that it's, it's such a privilege to see so many companies really exploding and being a part of that and seeing people coming into the Valley. I mean, it seems to be growing. Phoenix itself is growing. So I'm excited to see Mama's Cold Brew, hopefully, um, have our our brick and mortars and be able to really institute ourselves inside of all the communities across the Valley. I mean, that's really where my heart is at. Um is just being able to to be in front and have still, it's kind of like a handshake. It's a cup of coffee. Like I want people to still feel that human touch. So I want to bring that in a much larger scale. Absolutely. Well, we're excited to to witness that unfold. And I, I can't wait to sample your delicious beverages. I um, Caffeine is my spirit animal. Uh, Jack, let's close with a few words from the organizing committee of PHX Startup Week. What are some of the top line things? We, I know we sponsorships, there's ticket packages and things available for small businesses, volunteers. What, what are some of the things that you want to communicate with folks? What are the opportunities they should act on right now, even though the event doesn't start until February? Yeah, absolutely. So as we kind of talked today about uh, connection between entrepreneurs and, and businesses, that's really what PHX Startup Week is all about. And I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, we use the term startup, but it's really uh, welcoming and open to anyone who's starting something. So whether, you know, you are involved with tech startups like Jared, you're a service provider like Jack and Bean, or you are a, a classical business like Mama's Cold Brew and or a brick and mortar, uh, you've started something and that's what it's all about. Um, so what we have going on in February 17th to the 22nd is a six-day conference. It spans three venues and we really want to bring everyone in the greater Phoenix area together. So we have uh, three great venues at Galvanize in Central Phoenix, the Better Business Bureau in North Phoenix, and Fabric in Tempe. And it's going to be uh, workshops, speakers. Uh, we have networking events and mentoring opportunities. Uh, there's happy hours, so always uh, a great time to socialize and get to know other entrepreneurs and other people in the Valley. That's the best part. Um, so... Right now, uh, on the website phxstartupweek.com, you can find the uh, the link to sign up. And right now, we have a week pass for only $50. That's access to uh, the entire 
entirety of the event, six days. Um, you can also purchase venue pass if you only want to attend for one or two days. But um, we also have an opportunity for volunteers as well. So if you'd like to attend the event for free, you can help us run the event. We're all volunteers. It's a, a nonprofit organization that runs PHX Startup Week. So uh, that's really what makes the event possible. Um, and uh, for teams, we really want to see uh, more businesses uh, come out together as, as uh, co-workers and co-founders. So we have some, some discounts on team packages as well. So we're hoping to see a lot of different um, businesses in all phases of their development uh, as part of this community. And we should add that that $50 ticket price is for the entire week. It includes lunches and some cool swag. So Absolutely. And those prices go up as you get closer to the event. So this any, is the, to, the last any coffee? best price. Oh, there's absolutely coffee. Yeah. Okay. So 50 bucks gets you into all the sessions, all the venues, lunch, you know, more swag, whatever. Um, and absolutely uh, worth participating in. Uh, you'll make back your value in lunch alone. Yeah, probably. I would say so. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's um, I have not attended in the past, but it, I, I like very much the the spirit behind the event and the organizing committee's commitment to really making uh, the PHX entrepreneurial ecosystem something that is as inclusive and diverse and welcoming as possible. In my experience as a business owner here in the Valley, it really has been one of the friendliest places that I have lived and I've lived in many um, when it comes to finding people who, you know, will cheer you on, provide advice, provide support, um, and, you know, generally pull for everyone winning together. So I'd love to thank you folks for joining us here. Jennifer Respecki from Mama's Cold Brew, Jared Stoffer from RadPay, Jack Dorney with Jack and Bean. Thank you all for joining us in the studio today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. For all of us here at phx.fm, this is Dr. Adrian McIntyre. We'll see you next time on Valley Business Radio. Oh.